You know, I remember the first great guitar I ever played. I remember it viscerally. I remember it in my ears, in my eyes. I remember it in my hands, most of all. As a teenager, I was hanging out with my buddy. We were knocking around downtown doing our teenager thing. And I said, hey, let's go by the guitar shop and look at guitars. He says, okay, he's not a guitar player. I wasn't much of a guitar player at that time. I, I kind of came to this a little later in life. Um, but, you know, I was interested. I played a little bit. I had a guitar. And I was interested in, in getting better. So we roll up to the guitar shop, and out in front, there's a giant white drop-top Cadillac, a 1976 Fleetwood. Those things are huge. They're, they're as long as like a, you know, four-door pickup. A white convertible top, cow horns on the front. It had hubcaps with the crossed horseshoes in gold on it. It had a uh, like a TV aerial on the back, Continental kit. That's where the spare tires on the back bumper had the little clickers, the curb feelers, hair on cowhide seats. Thing was amazing. It was fabulous. And uh, my buddy goes, hey, I know this guy. I'm like, what do you mean you know this guy? He's like, yeah, come on. So we walk inside and we see a guy stand there and he's just exactly what you would expect him to be having seen his car. He's wearing what looks to me, I mean, I don't know, but like a bona fide Manuel suit. Manuel Cuevas is a, a famous tailor in Nashville who makes suits for the stars and he worked for Nudie Cohen, uh, who invented these suits they call Nudie suits. You've probably seen them. You know, Hank Williams had one with music notes on it. And Graham Parsons had one with pot leaves and stuff. And all the country stars wore them um, back in the day. And, and many of them still do. That rapper Post Malone wore one to the Grammys recently, and people were interested in it. But anyway, that Manuel made for him. This guy's just... Decked out, he's got like, I don't know, handmade cowboy boots on and a giant hat. And to my surprise, he recognizes my buddy right away. They start talking. So we start talking to this character. I don't know who he is, but he's impressive. He's about 60 years old. We're teenagers. You know, I'm wearing like my, my skateboarding uniform, basically. And this guy's wearing a handmade suit. And uh, we talked to him. He talks about music for a while. You know, he asked me what kind of music I like and and how long I've been playing. And he asked me if I want to see his guitar. And well, Yeah, I want to see your guitar. And he gets out the case. He's got one of those fiberglass Calton cases. They're super, you know, super. They're basically, they're handmade for the guitars too. And he takes out this guitar as his name inlaid in the fingerboard. I forget what this cat's name was. Skip something. And I don't know if he was, uh, you know, famous. I mean, I, I can't find out anything about him, so I, he might, must not have been that famous, but, you know, might have been a local honky-tonk hero. You know, you could still make a living playing honky-tonks, and people who opened up for the stars were still around. I, he might have been a writer. I don't know, but he was the whole package, and he plays a G-run on the guitar and asks me if I want to play it. And I'm like, yeah. So I'm, 
sit down in the on the stool in the guitar shop hands me that guitar and I grab it around the neck and my first impression of it was wow I've never felt anything like this in my life the context is obviously very different but it was like that John Prine song man I ain't ever felt like that before it had this really radically V-shaped neck. I'd never played a guitar like that. And suddenly, like all of the all of the shell inlay around the rim of the guitar and the guy's name and the hundreds of hours of of uh, you know detail work they put into it at the Martin Custom Shop all disappeared under the sensation of just holding that guitar in my hands and I strummed a big fat G chord on it and it was the most explosively loud guitar I've ever played in my life. So I played it a little bit. I, I thanked him, you know, and, and, uh, and uh, we walked out of the shop and my buddy points down to the to the hubcaps of the Cadillac, and he says, there's drugs in those hubcaps. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, that's how this guy makes his money. He smuggles drugs. When my dad was a detective, he arrested him, and that's how we got to know him. But then he became friends with us, and he'd come over to the house and sing songs and stuff and talk to us. I'm like, well, that's a... That's quite a story. <laughs> Allegedly true. And the whole story came back to me as a complete package yesterday after 35 years or more of just literally not having access to that memory. And the reason it did, I was carving the neck on a new guitar I'm building I kind of copied some of the other guitars I have. You know, I usually take a, a, a contour gauge and I take some impressions at different spots of the guitar and I draw them out and I think about that and I kind of shoot for that. I, but I don't ever, you know, strictly copy anything. And I had a kind of C shape going on the neck and, uh, and I kept knocking some of the shoulder out of that and moving it towards a U shape and then more towards a V shape. And... I kept going further than I would have gone on a guitar that was for somebody else because it's kind of an unusual shape, and I kept moving towards that V. Most people have never played a guitar with a V-shaped neck like that. They were popular for a moment in the 1930s, and I have a buddy who has a 37 Gibson that I play, and, uh, and it has that V-shaped neck, but it's clunky and it's big. I remember this Martin being slim but also really v-shaped and i just kept going on that neck until it felt right to me and then i grabbed it around the middle of it and held it upright and i remembered vividly every impression of walking into that guitar shop when i was a teenager and i first played the guitar so somehow that touch triggered that memory we know that smell is deeply associated with memory as a sense. We know that smell can send you back to a particular moment in an unexpected way, sort of like I just described. Um, probably more than other senses. But we don't really think of touch in that way. People who study haptic or tactile memory, um, they understand that we form deep impressions um, of felt objects and that we can remember them for years uh, 
having only briefly touched them. You know, like you could t touch a cat one time when you were tiny and recognize it as a cat years later. They also are somewhat um, uh, willing to uh, recognize the extent to which uh, haptic memory or tactile memory is culturally relative. I mean, so for instance, like if uh, any of us, and you can try this at home, it's fun, can reach into a jar and pull out a penny, a quarter, a dime, a nickel, but throw in some Canadian dimes, quarters, and loonies, pennies. They don't have a penny in Canada, I don't think, anymore. Um, you know, and you'll have a hard time pulling them out. You'll hesitate and then default to the closest thing that you have in your experience, unless you've handled those coins, and you'll probably find them. Um, and we have really fine discernment and individuation for objects that we've actually held before. So, like... It's real common for for me or for a guitar player to to be able to find a particular pick, um, even a particular state of wear on one in a pocket. And you can and you can you know fill in your own examples, but you can probably understand that it's very easy to recognize uh, those objects and to recall those objects, and uh, and you can do it from years ago, but. That's not quite the same thing as feeling a particular thing and having it trigger a memory. And it certainly is different than having a memory implanted in your consciousness as an ideal that you're shooting for. Now, I didn't think about this until I, I remembered this Skip, whatever his name was, um, you know, Custom Shop Martin. But I've been gravitating towards that V-shaped neck and the last few Telecasters I've built, and the one I play every day, has that V-shaped neck. And I want to say that my reason per, for preferring that neck profile is because I associated it with the whole package of Cadillac, guitar, guitar store, story, and experience um, that, I, that I recalled now, finally. You know, science as a as a discipline, broadly speaking, is a uh, is conservative, slow moving. It's self correcting. You know, if you you make an assertion, it has to stand up to review, and necessarily so. You know, I mean, you know, nobody dies when I insist that the judge in Blood Meridian is the Old Testament God. Well, I mean, in the novel they do, of course, but not in life. You know, so if I say I think tactile memory is an underappreciated uh, force in shaping individual identity, and I do think that, that is what I'm saying. The scientists say, how do you know? What evidence do you have for that? And I say, well, it came to me as a subjective impression while I was working in my laboratory on a guitar neck. And they're unimpressed with that kind of evidence. But I, when I think back about this experience and I search my mind for other examples, I can think of the way other touch memories have come back to me. And I can also think pretty vividly about, you know, what a certain car seat 
feels like, what's sitting on a, on a three-railed fence with my feet down on the edge of it feels like. And I can visualize those things at the same time, too. You know, one of the things about tactile memory that's really fascinating is it's very connected to the visual cortex. So when you feel in your pile of coins and you select out a nickel, you uh, see that nickel very well, too. But the thing that's interesting to me here that I'm interested that I'm chasing is a conversation about formation, not about recall. And I want to think that touching that guitar neck planted it in my mind as an ideal and I had a feel of it and a, a vision of it through, the, through my visualization. Um, and when I got it, I reached something like the ideal. What's interesting, though, is obviously, you know, the effect of time on memory, I think on, on any memory, certainly on, uh, you know, on memories that we recall through language, is that certain things are amplified and other things are diminished, and we adjust the story to, to match how it feels to us. So, you know, I'm thinking, like, what, what did this experience with this guy in a guitar shop 35 years ago, if it came back to me so vividly and I connect my sense of what a great guitar is to it, and that's obviously something that's important to me. I'm not a professional guitar maker, but I'm really serious about it. I'm, I'm trying to make a guitar that will have a similar impact on somebody else. I'm trying to make a guitar that maybe one of my students will play and they'll decide like, hey, I can make a guitar if I want to, and maybe they'll do that based on that. And when I'm thinking about this guy, I think that's what impressed me about him was his idea that he could make it himself. He could do whatever. I don't think he was famous. I think I would have known if he was famous. I think he just decided to be fabulous, independent of any level of fame or infamy he had, you know? And maybe he was smuggling drugs in order to sustain that, that appearance. I don't know. But I think he just decided to live in a way and in a time and after a manner that, that nobody else was doing at that time. You might say that it's, you know, derivative of, of you know, Porter Wagner and whoever else was, was uh, you know, wearing those fancy suits and and wearing the playing the guitars with their name inlaid on the fingerboard and all of that. But, I mean, he might have been, but hardly anyone else in the 1980s was doing that. Whether you were interested in his get-up or not, you would certainly remember who he was and think that he, you know, was something, was somehow in control of the way he presented himself and living his life in the way he wanted and doing uh, it how he wanted to do it. And I think that maybe is something, I mean, to put it another way, he might have been the first real self-conscious individual I really ever met or at least recognized that I had met, you know, we can recognize pennies, nickels, and dimes and quarters when we reach into our pocket. Everyone can do that. But you don't have to be a penny, a nickel, a dime, or a quarter in life. You can take that memory 
and you can turn it into something else and you can do your own thing. You can go your own way. I mean, I'm not saying that I present myself in a, in a radical way. I mean, I'm wearing overalls, not a nudie suit. And the contrast between me now uh, and him then is as great as it was me then and him then. <laughs> but, I don't know. Shaping that neck of that guitar maybe ended up uncovering for me some secret pattern in my life where I've decided that I can take the thing that I experienced, modify that as I want to, and then get a new outcome out of that. And, you know, the fact is, I made a guitar, carved a neck of a guitar that made me remember this event and connected it to it. And now these are two points on a line in my life. And my experience with this guy and what I've learned from him about uh, you know, our ability to shape our own lives and our future, I think, uh, I think uh, has been in me and working on me in ways that I probably haven't seen or maybe I've intermittently glimpsed like when I carved that V-shaped neck on my Telecaster a few years ago, but it just crystallized for me and came back to me at this moment. And I think it's interesting. I think that the touch of that guitar, surrounded as it was, ensconced in these other memories... Uh, was some ways definitive for me, not just in learning how to shape a guitar neck, but in, a, in an attempt to shape my life in a way that I wanted and had some control over, and I didn't have to become a penny, a dime, or a nickel. And I think maybe I learned that in that guitar shop 35 years ago. I know it sounds like uh, uh, something that will not pass scientific muster, but it's something that I believe in my heart or at least that event certainly contributed to a, a, you know, another series of points on a line that helped me uncover that. I know I've extended this pretty far. This obviously won't pass scientific muster. But just think about uh, your frame of reference. Think about the thing that you do or the thing you know about and ask yourself if there's a certain touch memory associated with that or if certain people who do that thing explore that same sense of touch. I'll give you an example really quickly. I've known a lot of farmers. I worked in farm work and did, you know, did that kind of work and grew up around farmers. I've never known a farmer I haven't seen scoop up a handful of soil and sift it like an hourglass through their hand. And I've seen this in different cultures around the world on TV and anthropological films and documentaries. It seems to be universal for farmers. Did the farmer learn how to do that from other farmers? Or did that touch of soil make or at least select that farmer? I'm not saying that I know touch makes us who we are in some sort of comprehensive or definitive way. But I'm asking you to think about it because it might lead us somewhere uh, to some greater understanding of uh, ourselves and our world. It's a podcast it's not a scientific paper. I get to speculate, and I enjoy doing it, and I certainly hope that you enjoy listening to it. It's really 
you know, profoundly meaningful and interesting experience for me to continue to bring you this podcast. So I thank you. Please remember to like, follow, and subscribe. And please uh, share the podcast with a friend. Okay, hang in there. Be safe. Be strong. Be well. And I'll see you next week.